We come this morning in this, in this third Sunday on, in John 11. We come to stand before the tomb of Lazarus. It is a, the vocabulary of the passage makes it clear that it's a natural cave, probably modified to, uh, to have niches inside shelves, to use very plain language, where the members of the family would, would ultimately, uh, the bodies would be placed. By way of reminder, Jesus has already built a friendship with this, this little family of siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. From the little town of Bethany, an uh, uh, outlying village uh, attached to the greater Jerusalem area. Jesus has been ministering down in the Jordan River Valley, in fact, on the other side, the east side of the Jordan River, when word comes that his friend Lazarus is very sick. Uh, Jesus, of course, already knew that, and Jesus purposed not to rush to his friend's side, about whom he cared, but rather to wait. And during that time of waiting, Lazarus's health situation went from bad to worst. Lazarus passed away. Jesus came then and uh, has a difficult conversation. Pastor Kerry talked about it last week with, with Martha, who, who loves Jesus and, and, and knows quite a bit about who Jesus is and what he's capable of, but is frustrated that he's allowed her brother to die. And Jesus assures her that her brother's death is a passing transitory thing. And then Jesus wept. And Carrie did a terrific job last week leading us to consider the reasons from the, from the simple grief of a man whose friend has died to the, to the majestic overview of the Savior of mankind who sees the effect that, that sin through death has had on creation. Well, they leave the house and begin to go toward the edge of town where the cemetery would have been, where this cave would have been, most probably in a hillside. As I look at verses 37 through 44, our scope for the morning, there's no question, there's no question that the main point of the passage is that our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the Lord over death. He's, he's, he's hammering that point home here in, a, in a, almost a sort of foreshadowing of how he's going to ultimately hammer the point all the way home at his own empty grave. And the time for that is fast approaching. This is the, this is the spring of the year within which, just a few weeks at most, Jesus is going to, to face his own death and resurrection. Here he's going to make it very, very clear that, that death has no mastery over him, but that he is, in fact, the master of death. But as we work toward that sort of climactic point, we see, I think, illustrated so many ways through these, this little paragraph, our gracious Savior. I'm going to read it as we go and point out some pictures that I think show his gracious character. Grace, grace is his extension of undeserved favor to those whom he loves. That's a short, easy definition of grace. 
And we see it over and over again in this passage. Roman number one, we see his gracious patience. His gracious patience. Verse 37, first we see it with our criticism. As they approached the grave, some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Could he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Now, let's, let's make that a real question. We're, uh, we're kind of a family gathering this morning, and of course we're grateful for those of you who are with us via the internet. But in the room this morning, we're kind of family. So let me ask that question in a non-rhetorical way. Let's make it a real question. Could, could Jesus, who has restored, not restored, given for the first time sight, he's restored some blind people too, but Jesus who has installed working eyes in somebody blind from birth, could Jesus have kept Lazarus from dying? What do you think? Yes. Of course yes. Absolutely yes. This question is, is not a question. This question is an expression of frustration. When my wife says to me, did you not notice that the garbage can is full? It's not a mere question. I know it's not a mere question because if I stay in my comfy chair and say, yes, sweetheart, I have in fact noticed that. Thank you for asking. That's not a question. It's an expression of frustration. So it is here. When our criticism, well, he keeps delaying his judgment. See, what, 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 what this crowd is saying is we will acknowledge who he is. We'll, we'll admit we know quite a lot about him. But we sometimes get frustrated when he doesn't do things to our liking. That's what verse 37 is. Verse 37, they, they acknowledge he opened the eyes of the blind. They're not, they're not uninformed about what he's capable of. They're not pushing back on his assertion of his miraculous ability. They're saying, we get it. But we don't like the way he handled this. I don't like how familiar that feels. <laughs> you know? Lord, I get, I get you. That is, I, I cognitively grasp that you're omnipotent in all things, that you're omniscient, you're omnipresent. You're, you're moving and active. Lord, I, 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 I got to tell you, I don't like the way you handled that. I don't like the way this is coming out. And yet he is patient, even when we would come close, awfully close, to criticizing him. Second, he's patient with our weakness. Verse 39, first little sentence in that verse. Jesus said, take away the stone. Hmm. When I was in high school, um, with, with some help from my dad, I bought, I bought the coolest car I will ever own. Now, some of y'all have some cool cars, and I, I've never disliked, I suppose, any car that I've had, but this was the coolest car I ever owned. I'd give much much to have it back. And it wasn't conventionally cool. You have to kind of have my nerd streak to realize it was a 1961 bare bones VW Beetle. I'm sure I've owned riding lawnmowers with larger engines in the years since. 
We bought it and it was in rotten, terrible shape. It needed a whole lot of work. Me and my daddy rebuilt it. I can still picture as though it were last week, which is ironic since I can't clearly picture much of last week. But I can picture like it was last week, the blankets spread out on the garage floor as that little tiny engine completely disassembled down to individual springs and nuts and bolts and other things I don't know the names of, spread out on blankets on the garage floor. My role was, boy, scrub this until it is no longer covered in oil but is instead metallic looking. That was my part. And yet here I am, 60 years old, I get to tell the story, me and my daddy. Me and my daddy rebuilt that car. No, we didn't. My daddy rebuilt that car, and he was kind enough to me to let me be involved. Dad, if you're watching, you know that's true, and I thank you for it. It's a sweet memory. What does that have to do with this moment? Here's what my dad was doing back in 1978 when we rebuilt that car. He was saying, I'm going to let Russell drive something and have the sense of having played a part in getting it ready for him to drive, though the boy knows nothing and can't do a thing. Rewind 2,000 years. Hey, you, take away the stone. If you read fast, it seems like it's a routine request, but if you think about it, it's, a, it's an almost odd request. Let me ask you something. Who standing there in that crowd is omnipotent? This is not a hard question. Jesus! Therefore, who is best qualified to move huge rocks that are not designed to be moved easily? Jesus! Can you imagine? Guys, take away the stone. No, Lord, you don't understand. We move that stone only when a family member dies. That stone is not designed to be moved just routinely. That is not a door-type stone. It is a seal-the-tomb-so-nobody-messes-with-it type stone. <laughs> you, you take the stone away. Well, okay then. Uh, somebody go get us a real stout piece of wood or bar that we can, we can pry with. We need, we need a bunch of pretty good-sized guys to get on the thing and get ready to push. Lord, it's going to take a few minutes. Take away the stone. What I love about that is it's a picture of Jesus who involves us in what he's doing, though he could do it far more quickly without us. Engaging us in his mission is not about efficiency. My daddy slowing down to teach me was not about getting that engine rebuilt as fast as it could be done. My father's a brilliant engineer. I bet it took him twice as long to rebuild that engine because he dragged me along on being involved. And I wonder how often the Lord has said, I could do this so much better if I wasn't trying to do it through Russell. But Russell, this is what I have for you to do, and you too, and you too. He's inviting you to be a part of what he's up to, though don't you see he could do it better without you? He doesn't need anything from you. If you promise not to tell my 12th graders, I'll tell you a test question they're going they're taking a test on Tuesday that covers Acts 17 
In Paul's sermon in Acts 17 to the philosophers of Athens, Paul makes it clear that God does not live in temples made by hands, neither is he worshiped by our activity as though he needed anything because he doesn't. One of the questions I'm gonna ask my 12th graders on that test Tuesday, don't you tell them. One of the questions I'm gonna ask is, in the space below, make a complete list of everything God needs from you. If they write anything, they're wrong. It's the only test question all year that if they, they have to leave it blank to get it right. God doesn't need anything from you. He loves you, he invites you, he extends himself to you. He engages you, he challenges you, but he does not need you. And Jesus didn't need this crew of sweaty guys to move that big rock. But he invited them to play a part and he was patient with them while they played it. And that blesses me. Letter C, he is gracious and patient with our faithlessness. Martha, ever the practical person, says, Martha, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord... By this time, there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Decomp will have begun. The King James says, he stinketh. It's not wrong, at least not unexpected. Now, remember, Martha and Jesus in the previous paragraph the Pastor Carey covered last week have already had a conversation about what Jesus is about to do. Martha should be up to speed Jesus has said to her what he is going to do. Martha, in this moment, stands for everybody who has ever said, well, now, now, I know what God says in his word, but we have to be practical. I know what God said, but, whoo, you're in trouble you're in trouble. You were doing good when you were on solid ground saying we know what God has said. That is not a place to put a but. That is not a place to put a however. That's only a place to put a therefore. But see, Martha is standing with those who would say, now I know what, what the word of God has said, but we have to be practical about this or my personal favorite, we know what God has said, but we have to be realistic. As though anything in the universe is more realistic than the word of God. Nothing is. Nothing is. The worst sort of unrealistic behavior is to not take God at his word. Taking God at his word is realism. Amen. Now it might not look like it in the moment. I'll give you that. He intends to grow our faith. And his growing our faith sometimes, often in fact, will require of us that we take steps, the outcome of which only he can see. I get that. But I think of Martha. When I am prone to say, eh, I know there's, there's guidance from God's word for this, but... Or we can't remove the stone. He's been dead four days. He stinks. I know what you said, but. And yet he is patient with her and trustworthy. And then letter D, he's patient with our inattentiveness. 
yet he keeps teaching us through his word. I have this highlighted in multiple Bibles that I have owned. Jesus said to her, verse 40, did I not tell you? Did I not tell you? I think he leads with that a lot where I'm concerned. I wish it was less often. Russell, didn't, didn't, didn't I tell you? Haven't you learned that? Haven't you taught that? Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying, I am waiting for your exercise of faith to tell me what I'm going to do. There may be times when he ordains a test of our faith such that he stays his hand until we pass that test of faith. In this case, however, as in many cases, he has, he has determined what he's going to do. The resurrection of Lazarus is not waiting for the faith of Martha. But if remember, the glory of God in shorthand is God's revelation of himself. God's demonstration of his godness. We're going to see in the very next paragraph next week that there are those unbelievers who knew that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the grave but saw it as a problem they wished could go away. They had exactly the same facts as Martha's going to have, but because of their unbelief, they missed the glory of God in the moment altogether. Hear what Jesus is saying to Martha is, haven't I explained to you that if you believe, then in the things that I am doing, you will see the glory of God. That message is the same for us. When we are inattentive, we can miss the glory of God. But if we take him at his word, We'll see his hand moving. He is patient. Roman numeral two, his gracious purpose. His gracious purpose. It's, it's twofold. We see it in verses 41 and 42. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and began to pray. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Letter A on your outline to fulfill his Father's will. He's said it various times. He's said it various times in the Gospel of John. Words to the effect of what I'm doing is what the Father wants me to do. What I'm saying is what the Father wants me to say. My will and the Father's will are in alignment. Here, he prays out loud in such a way to demonstrate his alignment with the will of his Father, to fulfill his Father's will. Then letter B, to reach the lost. I knew that you always hear me, now midway through verse 42, but I said this, I'm praying this, I'm making this an out loud thing, on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. That they may believe. You know, we've done various versions of the little video that leads into our, our series of our sermons in this series on John. 
and what those different videos, and they've had slightly different scripts, they've had slightly different ways of, of sort of introing the, 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 the given Sunday. Um, but in all of them, we have quoted, or at least strongly alluded to, John chapter 20, verse 30. The stated purpose for the whole gospel of John is so that you might believe. So that you might believe. And here, Jesus has, at this, at this number seven of the seven signpost miracles, the ultimate of his miracles during his earthly ministry until he gets to his own resurrection. This is not the last miracle. We're gonna see one more small miracle. It's big if your name is Malchus, and you can check me out on that, before the resurrection. But only that one, and it doesn't count as one of John's seven signpost miracles. Malchus is the guy that gets his ear lopped off the night before the crucifixion, and Jesus puts it back on for him. We'll get to it. This is the last of the seven signpost miracles, and in many ways, the most dramatic, for it demonstrates the Lord's mastery over death. And these miracles, this gospel, this mission of Jesus to come to earth, to seek and save that which is lost, so that you might believe. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, one who can master death, one who has mastered death, extends himself to you. One who paid for your sin debt. See, it, it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face the judgment. And what Jesus saves us from is that judgment. The judgment of an absolutely holy, absolutely perfect, absolutely inelastic, inflexible, rigidly righteous God. When God the Father evaluates your life, he's not going to judge you on whether or not you were a nicer person than your next door neighbor. Many of you, I bet you are. Not suggesting you have bad next door neighbors, but... You're probably some of the nicest people in your respective neighborhoods. I just know you are. But that's not, Jesus isn't going to compare you to your ill-mannered neighbor. He's going to compare you in judgment to Jesus Christ himself. And you're not going to do well in that judgment unless you have taken up by faith and through repenting of your sin the living God on his offer to stand in your place in that moment such that as God the Father judges you, you are judged on the track record of Jesus the Son, substituted for your own. That is the heart of the Christian message where on the cross, Jesus, who did not know sin, became sin for us that we might, in the moment of judgment, become the righteousness of God in him. leads us to Roman numeral three, his gracious power. Letter A, we have a death problem and it's real and we deserve it. Our culture is schizophrenic about death. It's, um, it's sanctity of life Sunday. The reason that matters is it reminds us that we as believers stand firmly for the for the sacredness of the life of the unborn in a culture that massacres the unborn. You do know that in the last two years, abortion has killed far more people in the United States of America than COVID has. 
COVID ain't the problem. COVID is not the big cause of death. Abortion is the big cause of death. And we, as a culture, worship at the altar of death when we continue, oh, we don't call it that. We're far more polished. And then at the other end of life, as a culture, we fear death in ways that are a bit irrational. Let me give you, let me give you this hot off the press death statistic. Here, here you go, ready? You're going to die. It's one out of one. You're going to die. And yet for the last two years, we've behaved as a culture as though death is some new invention about which we should, that the only prudent response is that we freak entirely out. And if you've not noticed it, you're not living on the same planet I'm living on. Freaked out behaviors. I say this. We have a song that we sing that the the worst that can come just shortens our journey and hastens us home. You've sung it if you've been at McGregor for the last several weeks. (laughs) It's just, all that song is saying is this, it's just death. What are you so freaked out about? It's just death. What are you so freaked out about, child of God? I have no death wish, but I do long for heaven, and I am ready to one day go home. Because see, my master has demonstrated to me he's got it where death is concerned. Death is not a credible threat, ironically. Jesus, letter three, Roman numeral three, he demonstrates his gracious power. Letter A, we have a death problem, it's real and we deserve it. The wages of sin is death, and if you've lived your life completely outside of the influence or conduct of sin, then you don't deserve death, but you haven't, so you do. The death that is coming for you is a death that you deserve. In fact, the hell that comes after death is hell that you deserve. And apart from Christ, it's hell that you'll have. Eternity separated from God. Eternity in torment apart from Jesus Christ who saves us from the wrath to come. We have a death problem. It's real and we deserve it. But let her be. He here demonstrates his utter mastery over that most universal fear When he had said these things, verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice. Now the verb there, he cried out, already means he was loud. And then the additional modifier with a loud voice reinforces it. He hollered. He was emphatic. Lazarus, come forth. And various various pundit commentators have said, Well, in John 5, Jesus said, the day is coming when the dead will hear my voice in their graves and will come out. And so some commentators, with I think a little bit of sense of humor, have said that if he had simply said, come out, every grave with an earshot would have popped open. And there would have been a mass resurrection. He had to focus down to Lazarus. I don't know if I buy that, but it's an interesting thought. He issues a direct command to one who has died. You and I can get you all the direct commands we want to people who are dead. They won't respond. 
but he can raise the dead, and here he does. And that direct command comes, and Lazarus comes out of the grave, and we are assured of our Lord's utter mastery over death. What Lazarus is wearing is not designed to be walked in. He did not stride confidently out of the grave. He penguin walked with his legs bound together and his arms bound to his side and something wrapped around his face. And I love that Jesus turns to these bystanders, probably some of the same bystanders that would have said, he can't do this. This is death, this is beyond him. You don't, I mean, dead people who, the dead people don't rise. And certainly dead people who've had four days don't rise. And now as Lazarus comes penguin waddling out of the grave and binding's too tight to move freely, Jesus turns to them and says, unbind him and let him go. It's kind of like you move the stone. Jesus could have undone those bindings in the same moment he raised Lazarus from the grave. Grave clothes are not a problem. Instead, he turns again to the bystanders and says, you do that part. Especially if you don't believe I could do it. Let him, let him, let him stretch his arm and bop you in the nose by accident as an arm that you would not have believed would ever move again is moving now. Feel, feel the breath of one that you'd have said could never breathe again. Feel that breath on you as you unwrap his face. Salvation is of the Lord. There's a picture here. I don't want to make too much of it because it's a, it's a plain narrative and it means what it means. But there is a picture here of the Lord involving us in his great mission. You and I cannot call a dead soul back to life. You and I cannot, pardon me, we cannot accomplish new life in the lost. Those who are dead in their trespasses and sin cannot be argued into salvation. They're not sick, they're dead. But our Lord does call them back to life. And if you get serious about evangelism as you should be, you'll see him do it. And if salvation is akin to the Lazarus being called back to life, perhaps discipleship is akin to unbind them now and let them go. I have called souls back to life, says the Lord. Now you be about discipling them. Perhaps there's a picture there of that. At any rate, death is scary. In between the services, I was shown video of a looked to me like a quite significant tornado right over by the coast right here. There are people this morning who will be dealing with noteworthy damage. I'm not going to hover over the news on a Sunday morning so I don't know about harm to people yet. But I know whose tornado it is when there's a tornado. And I know who is the master who's never taken off guard and should I go to heaven this afternoon from things I can't foresee? It is my master's hand for my life and my death. Since all life and death are in his hands, so is my life and my death. So it is with you. But even more significantly, 
not just life and death, but the larger issue of eternity. We'll sneeze our way through this life and it will be over. The book of James describes it like a puff of steam and then eternity. Is your eternity resting by grace through faith in the work of Jesus Christ or are you trusting some lesser thing that will fail you? Come to Jesus.